welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcasts. Today, one of the most significant developments in the Mueller Russia investigation. President Donald Trump's former lawyer, Michael Cohen, pleaded guilty to a new federal charge admitting that he lied to Congress about Trump's plans to build a Trump Tower in Russia in order to be consistent with the candidate. Trump's representa- Trump dismissed the importance of Cohen's plea to reporters. He's lying about a project that everybody knew about. I mean, we were very open with it. We were thinking about building a building. I guess we had in a form. It was an option. I don't know what you'd call it. Uh, We decided, I decided ultimately not to do it. There would have been nothing wrong if I did do it. Joining me to discuss the plea is Bradley Moss, a partner at Mark Zaid. So, Brad, how significant is the latest Cone plea and cooperation deal? Well, this is absolutely huge, and it is not a good day for President Trump or his legal team or his family. This is the president's former personal lawyer, one of his most inner circle uh, allies and associates, pleading guilty and admitting that he knowingly lied to Congress about the nature of the president's financial investment or interest in Russia during the campaign when there was a Russian disinformation campaign going on that was supporting the president, when there were when there was concerns about whether or not the president's financial exposures was a national security risk, when there was all these issues tied to meetings with Russians and Trump Tower and everything else. All this, all this time, we've been told nothing happened with this deal, nothing happened with this deal, and now Michael Cohen has come out and admitted under penalty of perjury before the judge in a signed document that he lied to Congress about it, that this deal was going on into the summer of 2016, and that the president was being repeatedly briefed, and the president's family was being repeatedly briefed on the details of the negotiation. Let's discuss the timing. Not only Cohen's upcoming sentencing, not only the blow-up of the Manafort deal on Monday, but perhaps more important, the submission of President Trump's written answers to the special counsel. Yeah, this is, this is not a coincidence that this is all happening now. So what did we have? We had the president finally submitted those written responses to a number of questions uh, provided by the special counsel. They addressed things like what he knew about the Trump Tower meeting, what he knew about the platform change at the Republican convention, and what he knew about interactions with people such as Felix Sater and Michael Cohen about a possible deal in Russia for a Trump Tower. Now, we know the president's answers to the questions about the Trump Tower meeting. He says he has no recollection of being informed. He says he has no recollection of knowing anything about WikiLeaks. We don't yet know what his answer was on this issue with the Trump Tower stuff. We only have his public statements so far. But if the president lied in his responses, if he committed perjury and knowingly provided false information to the special counsel, he is facing serious potential legal or political problems. This is why the special counsel wanted to sit down, because they wanted to understand what the president knew and to what extent he was concealing information from the government on that respect. We now know that Jerome Corsi has been giving information. We know that Roger Stone's in the special counsel's crosshairs. All of these things, the noose is tightening around Donald Trump, and his commentary is only going to get more angry and, and unhinged as it gets worse. I'm curious about one thing, Brad. What do you make of Mueller initially pushing Cohen off to Southern District prosecutors, so seemingly not interested, and now making a plea deal with him, which the Southern District didn't? 
Well, I think that was partially um, a DOJ bureaucratic move. I believe my understanding of when this all initially came about, they were looking at Cohen, that the Deputy Attorney General, Rod Rosenstein, who was overseeing the probe, decided that this particular uh, area into the issue of campaign finance violations and money law, uh, sorry, wire fraud wasn't really within the scope of uh, the special counsel's mandate. And so they gave it over to the Southern District. But when Michael Cohen initially pled guilty on those felonies, he agreed to cooperate with the U.S. government in general, and that included the special counsel who was allowed to have these numerous sessions with him. I think it's 70 hours of discussions with him in which they've gotten extensive amount of testimony from him. They've got his text messages, his emails, his documents, uh, everything he had on his phones, all of this data, and they're using it to build cases in different indictments against potentially different individuals where there was false material statements or where there was other felonies potentially committed. Brad, now, Trump said in an impromptu press conference after the Cohen deal that he had a right to do a business deal with Russia, and he kept repeating that. What is he not saying about that deal? Well, that's that's all absolutely $64,000 question. Yes, so long as the president was a private citizen, before he became the president of the United States, he had a right to make any business deals he wanted that were consistent with the law. But here were the problems. He repeatedly stated to the public during presidential debates in the primaries and in the summer and press conferences that he had no deals in Russia. He kept calling it fake news that he had any deals in Russia, where we now know that was completely false, that there was this ongoing negotiation that Cohen was briefing him on Cohen's ongoing discussions with Putin's uh, senior officials, with Felix Sater, who was a uh, Kremlin-linked business uh, associate of the Trump circle, was trying to make this deal, trying to make a big meeting between Putin and Trump happen in the summer or the early fall of 2016. All these things were going on, and this is the problem of how, to what extent, the president has been misleading the public in the context of the presidential election, and more particular to this investigation, to what extent he provided false information to the special counsel and his written responses. All right, just about a minute here, but what kind of time is Cohen facing? Uh, with this particular plea, so long as he continues to provide the cooperation, it's zero to six months. It's basically just being tacked on as, you know, icing on the cake to his already existing felony uh, plea deal. He's looking at several years, but as more as he cooperates, there's going to be more leniency. All right. Thanks so much, Brad. That's Bradley Moss, a Absolutely. partner at Mark Zaid. And um, just a reminder, under federal law, it's a crime to knowingly and willfully make material false statements to Congress or to any branch of the federal government in connection with matters under investigation. That's what Cohen pleaded to. President Trump has been complaining about the Ninth Circuit since a California federal judge blocked the Trump administration from shutting down the DACA program in January. He ramped up those complaints after another California judge blocked Trump's attempt to ban asylum at the border for those crossing illegally last week. The order today is not we can get around that very easily. What I do say, Ninth Circuit is very unfair when everybody files their case in the Ninth Circuit. They file it for a reason. 
The president's complaints are nothing new for the circuit. It's been stereotyped as too liberal by conservatives for years. Just how liberal is the Ninth Circuit? Here to answer that question is Steve Sanders, a professor at Indiana University's Maurer School of Law. Steve, Trump is complaining about the Ninth Circuit, a federal appeals court, but most of his real complaints have been about individual district judges in that circuit. Explain the distinction. Sure. Uh, well, district judges in the federal system are, are trial judges, uh, uh, trial court judges. They're the first level of the federal judiciary. Uh, and, and most states have at least one uh, so-called federal district. Many states like uh, California and larger states have two or three different districts. The Ninth Circuit is a court of appeals, which sits over a group of states, actually in the Ninth Circuit, a, a pretty large group of states, California, Washington, Oregon, Arizona, and Nevada, Idaho, Hawaii, Alaska, and Montana. Uh, and, and the Ninth Circuit takes appeals from litigants who are dissatisfied with the results they've gotten in the district courts in those states. And, and, and occasionally, the Supreme Court takes appeals from those courts of appeals. The Ninth Circuit is one of 12 such courts of appeals spread around the country. Each one, um, uh, well, most of them, 11 of them oversee groups of states. And then there's another court of appeals for the District of Columbia. So, Steve, for years, the Ninth Circuit has been stereotyped as the most liberal circuit, so much so that conservative groups mounted an effort to split it up in 2011. Just how liberal is the Ninth Circuit compared to other appellate courts? Um, you know, I, I don't know that I've seen, uh, in, uh, there has been no recent data, uh, at least reliable scholarly empirical data, that measures the liberal or conservative uh, 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 sort of temperature of each federal circuit. You know, for one thing, it's it, it's hard to do that kind of work. How do you, you know, many decisions that courts issue are really difficult to characterize as, quote, liberal or conservative. So you have a basic problem of what kind of data are you starting with? How are you going to, what are your inputs going to be to try to decide that kind of thing? There's a recent study that tried to base its judgment on the political donations that were made by law clerks to judges in those circuits, which seems like a really tenuous and and, and, and uh, uh, unreliable way of measuring a circuit. Um, the, the most systematic study of the liberal versus conservative nature of the federal circuits um, was done uh, uh, back in uh, uh, well, in the early 2000s, the data ended at 2000. And at that point, the um, Ninth Circuit was uh, uh, pretty liberal. It was uh, uh, more liberal than most of the federal circuits in its decisions. But again, that data is now almost 20 years out of date. Um, other Republican presidents like Trump and George uh, uh, W. Bush have had appointments to those courts. I think a lot of the Ninth Circuit's liberal reputation stems from you know, a small number of very high-profile liberal judges that that court has had, in some cases, dating back to appointments that were made by Jimmy Carter in the late 1970s. Stephen Reinhart, who just passed away within the last year, was a sort of liberal lion of the federal judiciary. Um, there's another uh, 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 judge named Marcia, Marcia Burzon, who still sits on that court. But the Ninth Circuit also has conservative judges. I think some of this comes from the stereotyping of California. The Ninth Circuit headquarters is in San Francisco. A lot of its cases come out of California. And, and so I think there's a mixture of factors. I, I, I would say that, you know, what 
President Trump is saying is based on probably things that his Federalist Society advisors and friends have been telling him, which he is in turn, you know, vastly oversimplifying and turning into sort of cartoon character versions of uh, uh, a commentary on the fe- on federal judges. And, and indeed, but those even those perceptions that he's being told about are probably about 10 years out of date. Yeah, there are studies showing that the circuit is becoming more centrist. Now, President Trump has also said that the Ninth Circuit is the federal appeals court reversed most by the Supreme Court. What do the stats tell you about that claim? Yeah, that is flatly not correct. Uh, And and here I'm relying on some data uh, that was gathered by a scholar at the University of Texas named Stephen Vladek, who I believe has occasionally been a guest on Bloomberg Law. And the data that he found indicates that over the last five years, over the last five Supreme Court terms, three federal courts of appeals have actually been reversed by the Supreme Court in a higher percentage of cases than the Ninth Circuit. Uh, The Third Circuit, which is on the East Coast, the Sixth Circuit, which is sort of in the middle of the country, and the Eleventh Circuit, which is in the South, all had higher reversal rates than the Ninth Circuit. Um, Because the Ninth Circuit is so large, it covers a geographically very large area. It has lots of judges, and so therefore it has a very large caseload. In absolute numbers, um, the Ninth Circuit may look like it's getting more reversals, but as a percentage of all the cases decided, it's actually down there near the middle. There are three circuits that in the last five years have had higher reversal rates at the Supreme Court. And Steve, just how much does whether a circuit court is liberal or conservative have to do with the reversal rate? Uh, not very much. Uh, you know, some of these uh, courts that have been more frequently reversed, like the 11th Circuit, is actually considered a relatively conservative uh, court based on the appointments, uh, who appointed the judges who are sitting on that court. And, and so I, I don't think there's a correlation uh, there at all. The Supreme Court in the last year or two, in a couple of very high-profile cases, one a civil rights discrimination case, another immigration case, upheld the Ninth circuit in 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 uh, opinions that had come to quote unquote liberal outcomes if you want to put it that way so i don't think there's very much of a uh, very much of a correlation there it's also important to remember that the supreme in something like 70% of the cases it takes the supreme court reverses the lower court i mean the supreme court sometimes takes cases and affirms the judgment of the lower court but usually if the supreme court is going to get involved in a case, it's because it's troubled by something that happened below. And so it is the norm for circuits when cases get to the Supreme Court for circuits to be reversed. Uh, more often, something like 70% of the cases the court takes are reversals of lower courts. And one final thing, it's important to note that the Supreme Court hears a tiny fraction Steve, of we have all to the cases leave it there. Decided. I'm so sorry because there's so much to say about this, but thank you. That's Steve. Sanders is a professor at Indiana University's Maris School of Law. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.